Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania hunters will be permitted to use semi-automatic firearms for small game, but won't be allowed to use semi-automatic rifles to hunt big game like deer and bear. That's just one of the significant rule changes given final approval by the Pennsylvania Game Commission this week. We'll discuss that one and others on today's program with Travis Lau, a press, who is the press secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Travis, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. We have uh, open lines right now. We know this is a popular topic amongst uh, Pennsylvanians. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's start with the, the semi-automatic rifle issue because this was a bit of a surprise, the commission's vote earlier this week. Back in January, I think it was, the commission had given, it looked like preliminary approval to uh, using semi-automatic rifles for hunting and almost all species where uh, uh, hunting was legal in, in, in Pennsylvania. But it was a bit of a surprise on Tuesday when the commission said, not for big game like deer or bear. What happened? Well, it, it, it is a surprise and it isn't. You know, the uh, the reason the Commonwealth Documents Law exists as it does and, and provides for approval not only preliminarily but then at a subsequent meeting allows for that public input and that's what happened here uh, when the board preliminarily approved semi-automatic rifles for all seasons where manually operated centerfire rifles can be used now uh, including the big game seasons and that was january when that preliminary vote occurred uh, they put it out there for public discussion at that point. Now, uh, suffice it to say, ever since November, when the authority was handed to the Game Commission through legislation to regulate semi-automatic rifles, we had been getting a lot of public comment. But uh, that public comment ramped up, and then after that January vote, uh, our staff at the Game Commission put out a scientific survey to, to try to gauge where the average hunter stands on that, because throughout all of this public comment, throughout the entire public comment process uh, from November on through, it was clear that big game was a sticking point regarding semi-automatic rifles. Uh, the the total number of public comments, the, the last total I saw was somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 1,100 comments, written comments had come in by email or through the mail. And largely they were in support, more than 800 in support of semi-automatics on the whole. But of those comments where they mentioned big game, uh, it was it was three to one against big game. And you could kind of look at that and, and make a determination for yourself of, of exactly what that said, because when you're trying to categorize these comments that are from letters and emails, uh, you know, the, the letter email might be all over the place. They don't necessarily uh, check the same boxes as they go down through. Mm. But, um, but when we put out this survey, uh, it, it did make it clear that, uh, that our average hunter didn't want semi-automatics for big game. Before we go any further, probably should define what a semi-automatic rifle is for those who don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the easiest way to describe it is that uh, when you pull the trigger on the rifle, uh, there is a shot and the next shell is loaded automatically as opposed to, like, say, a bolt action or a lever action rifle where it has to be manually done. Uh, just because many times there are many people who confuse semi-automatic with automatic. Fully automatic is you pull the trigger, it just keeps shooting. Here it's semi-automatic shell 
pull trigger shot shell is uh, is loaded then all right so what were the reasons given for those who did not favor or did not support uh, using semi-automatic rifles for big game well we didn't really ask that question in the survey for uh, what we saw in public comment were oftentimes there were reasons given for why they opposed uh, safety was cited as a concern and that was where there was a bit of a rub uh, even back in January when the commissioners had that preliminary proposal up for consideration uh, because We've seen no evidence from anywhere that semi-automatic rifles or hunting with semi-automatic rifles leads to any sort of increase in, in or decline in hunter safety, I should say. Uh, semi-automatic rifles are allowed for some form of hunting in every other state but Pennsylvania. Really? Uh, yes, which will remain the case until the new hunting season starts and semi-automatic rifles are approved here for small game and fur bears. So in, in checking with those other states, and our law enforcement folks did that, we, we tried to, to get an idea from those other states, and, and in particular the states that most resemble Pennsylvania in terms of population density and, and number of hunters, as, as to had they ever seen any sort of increase uh, in in, in um, safety-related incidents after the approval of semi-automatic rifles. And in some states, semi-automatic rifles have never been prohibited. But uh, we, we've seen nothing there. And, and, you know, our board didn't really feel that, that the safety concerns were, were necessarily valid concerns. They didn't believe that, that uh, simply by permitting semi-automatics, which is just a rifle with a different action than what's permitted now, that you were necessarily uh, allowing for more shots to be taken, that we would continue to educate our hunters to the importance of taking a, a, a clean and ethical shot and and making a clean and ethical harvest what about caliber i mean and again i you know feel that i have to get some background here for those who are not hunters that uh you know most of the time for hunting uh, deer and bear big game here in pennsylvania is a higher higher caliber caliber at least uh, like a 30 caliber uh, uh, bullet most semi-automatic rifles in Pennsylvania are probably under 30 caliber. Yeah, the the most popular caliber for the AR platform semi-automatic rifle is 223. So that was a point of great discussion too, especially heading into the January vote and and whether there should be a caliber restriction, a higher caliber restriction for big game given the relative rarity of those higher caliber cartridges. I say more the uh, that they're less available commercially than say a 223. Uh, what the board did in that preliminary vote, and again, big game has com- been completely taken out now, was approved deer and bear for 223 and higher. Uh, elk, they bumped it up to, I believe, 45 caliber mm-hmm. and higher. Our guest during this portion of the program is Travis Lau, press secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. We're talking about some new regulations adopted by the commission this week. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. So I want to get back to the survey that you, you mentioned that the overwhelming majority uh, favored semi-automatic rifles, but it, it, it was different, though, for big game like deer and bear. Um, what's the difference between, you know, it was made, the, the changes were made that semi-automatic 
semi-automatic rifles could be used for small game, like pheasant, like rabbits, mm-hmm. squirrel, fur bearers, too. Uh, so what's the difference in safety when, you know, we're talking about a smaller target? Well, you know, you, you certainly have a, a difference in participation when you're talking about, especially the firearms deer season. You just don't have that number of hunters in the woods collectively at the same time during small game season. Uh, you, you, not to say that after a game lands is stocked with pheasants, you don't have a lot of hunters there. But then you're not going to have a lot of pheasant hunters who are going to choose to use a semi-automatic rifle either. Well, it's that, just can, not I, pr- can, can I interrupt you for just one second? Sure. I have to say that I was surprised when I saw that that was even being considered because rifles, for the most part, are not used for small game. Well, uh, except when you talk about squirrel hunting. Right. They, they are popular for squirrel hunting. Cr- correct. And, and that's where we would see greater support. Woodchucks the same way. You know, uh, woodchucks are, are most are, are typically hunted with rifles rather than right. shotguns. Right. Uh, rabbits to a lesser extent, maybe. So I, I, I don't know other than, um, you know, with what I saw out of the safety concerns that were aired, and I did see some specific to big game about, well, there are way too many hunters in the woods during the firearms deer season to allow semi-automatics. Again, it, it goes to that thought that semi-automatic rifles are going to lead to more shooting which is something that we haven't been able to collect any evidence from uh, about from any other state. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, and again, I go back to the small game, uh, you know, groundhog, woodchucks, uh, rabbits, squirrels, uh, they're on the ground. They have uh, four legs. They're on the ground for the most part. Pheasants aren't. Pheasants fly into the air. Yeah, they, and they, they start. They start out there. But 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 again, you know, when you when you talk about your pheasant hunters, you're not going to. You're not talking about folks who are going to choose a semi-automatic rifle for that. I reason. would hope not. But yeah. why legal then? Why keep them? Why even keep them legal for that? Well, I believe it was just a cleaner break to approve for all small game. Okay, but I... like like pheasants now can be hunted with a manually operated center fire rifle uh, within caliber restrictions, and I'd have to look that up. Uh, what what the board did in improving semi-automatics is adopt it for those other seasons where manually operated rifles are permitted. Mm-hmm. And we should mention also, for background purposes, that uh, semi-automatic shotguns have been legal in Pennsylvania for years. And uh, there are many small game hunters who do use semi-automatic uh, shotguns. Yeah, and in our special regulations areas, the counties surrounding Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, semi-automatic shotguns are permitted for deer hunting. Um, that's the lone exception regarding deer hunting in Pennsylvania. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the distance that uh, and safety, you know, the distance that a shot goes and safety and all that. Uh, you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Pennsylvania Game Commission changed some rules and regulations this week at their meeting, and uh, some of them are pretty significant. Uh, we're talking with uh, Travis Lau, who is uh, the press secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, one 800 729 
Uh, we talked about uh, the the what was decided when it came to semi-automatic rifles and uh, hunting here in Pennsylvania, especially with uh, big game like deer and bear. But uh, before we leave that topic, you had mentioned to me that uh, as soon as the decision was made, that you get a, a, a pretty big response from the public. Yeah, we did, and and we got that through our email. We got that on our Facebook page. There was there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of negative comment about the commissioner's vote from the folks who who are supportive of semi-automatic rifles for all hunting and that's to be expected i mean this uh, it was clear from the get-go on this just from the public comments that were coming in that it was a divisive issue that that uh one that our hunters were going to have to agree to disagree on and what the board did was uh side with the majority is it an issue that will be revisited well, I expect that it will. One thing, and I don't have those numbers with me, one thing that the survey showed was a, was a distinctive break in age groups, whereas uh, the younger age groups tended to be more supportive of semi-automatic rifles for big game, and the older age groups were less supportive. And I think that just with that age dynamic in play, that uh, that we're likely to revisit it as as our younger age groups become more of our average age group. You know, Travis, and I don't want to get off track because we've talked about this before on the air, that uh, one of the challenges that Pennsylvania faces is that uh, there aren't as many young people who are becoming hunters. Uh, is that changing, or are you still seeing that most hunters are they skew older? Well, I I think that there's some data uh, to suggest one or the other. I think overall, with our hunter numbers, we are still uh, struggling to keep youth interested in hunting. That said, uh, in recent years, we've we've uh, there were several consecutive years where we broke records in terms of the number of young hunters that that were certified to buy their first license through our hunter trapper education program so there's still interest out there but yeah it's there um, I think with kids in general there are so many competing interests with activities and and schedules are so busy that uh, it, it's tough in some cases to shoehorn hunting in now again before we leave this topic and go on to some of the other uh, rules and regulations uh, when we're talking semi-automatic rifles what most people picture is an AR-15 what many people refer to as an assault rifle, although, you know, those who know would uh, say that is not an assault rifle. It looks like one militarized uh, rifle. Is that what we're talking about hunters carrying? It, it, it wouldn't be prohibited under the new law. Okay, so you very well now, could have someone in the woods with an AR-15 that looks like an assault rifle. Yes. Now, we had talked about uh, the caliber restrictions regarding big game previously, and there are caliber restrictions that are tied to small game, which is what we're going to have in the next hunting season, whereas the uh, for small game, the caliber must be between .177 and .22 caliber, and for woodchucks and fur bears, .22 or larger. So I, I'm not sure the availability, uh, it, uh, um, the caliber availability on an AR platform for those lower calibers, but yes, I'd say that's a possibility. All right, let's move on to uh, some other topics. We'll still take uh, some questions uh, if, if you have them uh, for the next few minutes. We're going to be talking about geography education in the second part of uh, the program. But I wanted to talk about uh, some of the other uh, changes that were, were made. Um, 
you know, this is one change that was made kind of as a throwback, uh, but only antlered bucks will be legal statewide for the first five days of the firearms deer season, in, except in special regulations area. Um, you know, last, I don't even know how many years, hunters have been able to take both uh, buck and doe. What's with this? Well, the, the change that takes place is uh, a change only in our area. In Wildlife Management Units 5A and 5B, uh, we've, we've enjoyed a, a concurrent deer hunting for antlered and antlerless deer during the duration of the firearms deer season. And that goes back as far as I can remember since since uh, we moved to a WMU system as opposed to a Which county system. Which has been system. about 15 years uh, or so, yeah. Now, the other WMUs in the mix there in recent years were 5C, 5D, and 2B, uh, 5C and 5D surrounding Philadelphia, to be around Pittsburgh. The rest of the state for the past several years has been in this split season format and the commissioners have shown an interest to, to shift more more of the state. The special regulations areas stay out because there's a, a different need for the harvest of deer there. Mm. Uh, so, but this is a change though, right? In in 5B and Which 5A. Is, yeah. And by the way, just to, to, for, I keep giving background here for those who don't know, but uh, uh, when you say that you went to a wildlife management uh, arrangement, it used to be by region for the most part, or even by county. Uh, yes. By county. And uh, now it's down to there was science involved in you know where there was a bigger deer population and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's just a, a way of using uh, what we would consider more sensible boundaries for wildlife habitats as opposed to political boundaries of counties. So whereas there's 67 counties, there's 23 wildlife management units. We do adjust the borders uh, for one reason or another from time to time. But uh, there there are areas that are bigger than counties, but they're areas of like deer habitat. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to uh, a couple others. Uh, and this is a, is a change as well. Adult and senior pheasant hunters must buy a special $25 stamp in addition to the regular hunting license to pursue pheasants. Mm -hmm. that, Almost like a duck stamp. Yes, yes, or, or any of the other privileges that hunters must purchase if they want to participate in different seasons. Uh, the pheasant permit was another one that we got a lot of comment on. Uh, there was a lot of support for it by pheasant hunters because they recognize that it's a way to keep the pheasant program going. There was a lot of opposition by people that just didn't want to pay for a pheasant permit or who thought that $25 was too much to charge for a pheasant permit considering it's higher than the cost of a resident hunting license. Uh, and then there was there was also a talk where there were, were se senior lifetime hunting license buyers out there who believed that they should be grandfathered in to pheasant, pheasant hunting privileges, even though a permit was now being created. But the the board approved as preliminarily proposed. It was it's a twenty five dollar permit. All adult hunters, including seniors and senior lifetime licensed buyers, will need it in the 2017-18 season to hunt pheasants. Now, do pheasants have to be tagged much like a, a deer would be? No. Okay. So if you have that stamp, 
Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are uh, limits on how many you can take and that kind of thing in a day and a season and, and that sort of thing as well. All right. Uh, the commissioners voted to allocate 804,000 antlerless deer permits for next year, and that's an increase uh, up from uh, 748,000 from last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, this is how the Game Commission has tried to control the size of the deer herd in Pennsylvania. Uh, why the increase? Well, the increase does follow several years where the general trend has been a decrease. Um, basically, you manage deer populations based on your population objective, whether you want to see that population increase, decrease, or hold steady. And then you do that through the antlerless harvest because it's a, it's generally a, a reliable number where it takes the allocation of four tags to harvest one antlerless deer. So it's different in different areas, but we you can run the numbers and, and, and have pretty good confidence that you're going to take the number of deer and achieve your objective. So the commissioners in the past several years have decreased the number overall, held it pretty much steady in in recent years. I think it went up by a total of 4,000 tags last year, and here we have a significantly higher increase. Some of that's due to that change in, in 5A and 5B uh, because you're into a split season format there where antlerless deer can't be taken until the first Saturday of the season. Uh, a, a higher allocation is necessary to take the number of deer that you want to take from those WMUs. Mm-hmm. But, but some of it, too, is it does come on the heels of this lower allocation. By holding the allocation down, you're allowing, uh, allowing deer numbers to rise. And uh, you're you're now now you have deer numbers at a level that you, maybe you want to take more in harvest. Let's take a phone call from Mike in Lancaster. Mike, you're on the air. Yeah, I have a, my question is uh, that survey that uh, this man's uh, quoting was that a hunters only or was it public input from uh, anyone and everyone? It, it was hunters only. Uh, the survey was sent out uh, by mail to 4,000 resident and non-resident uh, licensed buyers, and they were all adult or senior licensed buyers. And we got 2,002 surveys back. Uh, about uh, nearly 600 of them were completed online. The rest were mailed in. I took a look there uh, yesterday, and I, I haven't really studied it, but I did take a glance because I'd been getting some comment there that cast doubt on the survey or, or suggested that, that maybe the, the sample we looked at was somehow skewed where more of the survey respondents were coming from bigger cities or more of them were older, and, and looked at the counties that, that our residents were coming from, and they pretty well matched the counties where we sell the most hunting licenses mm-hmm. and 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 it definitely was a a spread in there of number of responses across counties statewide as you'd expect in yeah. a random sample mike you sound like you want to follow up no i just uh, the reason why i asked that was i just wanted to see if uh, yeah this the results could be skewed uh just like uh, the, the russian thing with our voting going on right now <laughs> That was my only reason for asking. All right. Thank thank you very much for your call. I mean, was there thought given to opening the survey up to non-hunters as well? No, I don't believe so. And and I think what we wanted to gauge most was how our hunters felt about semi-automatics and and semi-automatics for these 
different season opportunities. Uh, Some of the reason that the survey was done because the public comment, while the numbers came in as they did, um, there's really nothing to to verify that a commenter is a hunter, is a Pennsylvanian. Uh, You know, we did get some some very big pushes uh, where overnight you come in and there'd be 400 messages and they'd all be written the same way. Uh, So there, there was definitely some letter writing campaigning that entered into the public comment whereas the survey itself is is what it is uh in your responses from a random sample what do you hear or when do you hear from the non-hunting public well uh when when you and i uh talked in here last last year about uh the possible closure of middle creek we heard very much from the non-hunting public on that issue um, I would say with semi-automatics, we heard from the non-hunting public. I'm not sure uh, how those numbers break down. Uh, I definitely heard some support for, or, or some opposition from non-hunters for, uh, for potential safety reasons. Uh, one, other, uh, one, of the, one other issue I wanted to bring up, a uh, uh, change. Bow hunters will get the chance to hunt bears and deer at the same time. Yes, um, and that that is a change where uh, our archery bear season has followed our archery deer season. Um, A lot of archery hunters wanted to see the archery bear season move into the final week of the archery deer season, which is uh, generally high time for the rut. It's when a lot of our big bucks are taken in the state. Uh, The commissioners decided to, to... be more conservative there and move it ahead yet another week so there wouldn't be so much crossover of uh of there's more hunting pressure during that final week of the archery deer season due to the chances of taking a buck then travis we only have a few minutes left i want to thank you for being with us today Uh, these are significant changes yeah, well, they they are, but uh, but again, we're not doing anything here in Pennsylvania that isn't being done elsewhere. And and uh, you know, I think in Pennsylvania generally we're we're slow to change. Uh, we are conservative. We do honor our hunting tradition. We we like the way things are for the most part. And and that's where some of the opposition came from too. But I think as as we move forward and 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 hunters in Pennsylvania get more comfortable with the idea of semi-automatic rifles because they're sharing the small game was with those semi-automatic rifle owners uh, that that maybe everybody gets to take a breath and and uh, just become more comfortable with it. Travis Lau is the uh, press secretary for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Travis, again, thank you very much for being with us today. No problem, Scott. Thank you. By the way, if you would like to uh, hear today's program again, maybe you're just hearing a portion of it and you want to hear the, the entire program or you want to tell someone about the, the program that you're hearing this morning, you can do that by going to our website, witf.org. Under Smart Talk, we have audio from all our past programs. Uh, and usually, now Fridays it doesn't, but uh, usually the program airs again at uh, 7 o'clock tonight. The Pennsylvania State Geography Bee, sponsored by National Geographic, will be held this afternoon at the State Museum in Harrisburg. Geography is a subject that doesn't get near as much attention as, say, math, reading, and writing in schools. A recent study found that half of social studies teachers spend less than 10% of their time in the classroom on geography. We're joined now by Kristen Byers, the program manager for the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geography Education, and she also coordinates the Pennsylvania Geography Bee. 
Kristen Byers, welcome to the program. Thank you. Before we start talking about uh, the National Geographic Pennsylvania State Geography Bee, let's talk about geography and geography education itself. Nowadays, it seems to be one of those subjects that doesn't get a whole lot of attention in schools. We can talk about that a little bit later. But why is geography relevant? Why is it important? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand what geography is. I think a lot of people have a misconception. They think that geography is memorizing places on a map, just pointing that out and knowing uh, rote memorization facts. Um, but geography is really so much more than that. It's kind of the synthesis of a lot of different things. Um, you know, Merriam-Webster defines geography as a science that deals with the description, distribution, and interaction of the diverse physical, biological, and cultural features of the Earth's surface. I think the key in there is the interaction, the fact that um, you know, the relationships between humans and the environment, um, all of those uh, things working together to, uh, to help understand how the world works. Geography isn't just knowing where something is. Um, I like to think that uh, geography, knowing like places on a map is very similar to knowing your ABCs. You know your ABCs to learn to read, just like you know where places are on a map. And that's kind of the foundation for geography, but you really need to build on that to have a good understanding of geographic concepts. You know, why should we study geography? Well, you know, there are a number of reasons. It, uh, for those of us who like to watch the news or listen, read the paper or uh, read about the world, it helps us to put news in context. Um, you know, if you think about, if you hear something about something in Hong Kong, a situation in Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong's a city in southern China, but if you don't know that, um, you know, if you don't know that it's separate from the mainland China, then uh, you don't realize that it's geographically isolated. It's, uh, you know, it, it just helps us when we know the basic geographic uh, concepts then we can understand what's going on in a different place in the world. I think one of the key words you use there is context. Mm -hmm. We have heard often in the last five to ten years about uh, being a global society, that we are not just Americans, that what happens – and the best example I always give, and it's a simple one, is that who would have thought a few years ago that the economy of Greece or Iceland could have an impact on here in the United – what happens here here in the United States. But mm -hmm. if you don't know where these places are, you don't know the culture of these places, actually, even if you don't know the history right. as it relates to the land and how it got to be, then you're really not bringing full knowledge to it. It's hard to make decisions in your own mind doing it that right. way. Right. And I think historically, there have been a lot of poor decisions that have been made because people who are making these decisions really didn't understand what was going on in a region. I often think of a um, place like uh, India and Pakistan when, in 1947 when partition occurred and, you know, Great Britain was uh, pulling out of, of India and, um, you know, they, they had a guy come in. He was a British judge. And he had 48 hours to draw the line that would divide, in, divide India from Pakistan. And he wasn't, he didn't have the time or the opportunity to really look at the cultural situation between the Hindus and the Muslims and what was really going on there. It was, uh, you know, that was a decision that has had, uh, you know, consequences for generations now. Millions, millions of people were affected. Now, there were a lot of other things going on, but... You know, those leaders weren't thinking geographically. They weren't thinking about the culture and the people. They were, they were just making a quick decision. And I think that happens 
a lot. I think it's so critical that our decision makers really have a good understanding of geography and not just what it looks like on a map, but who these people are, how they live, what they believe. It's just critical. You know, when, when you look back at history and uh, some of the mistakes that uh, even the United States made, uh, you go back to the early days of Vietnam, mm-hmm. the Southeast Asia, the French occupied Southeast Asia for years. And if you read the history, what was said behind the scenes in the U.S. government, right. it was, well, you know, the French did everything they could and they couldn't do anything with Vietnam. Why are we going to be any more successful? We didn't learn those lessons. And there are those who point to invading Iraq Mm -hmm. in 2003, that not knowing the culture, the relationship between Iraq and the other Middle Eastern countries, that that was a contributor to the problems that we had in Iraq. So, I mean, just a couple examples with the United States here in the last few years. Many more, I'm sure we could sure, Yeah, probably really could. So, with that said, I mean, we've kind of established that geography is important. Why isn't it as important in our schools today? (laughs) That is a really good question, and I wish I had a really good answer for you, but I don't. I don't, frankly, understand why it's not so important. Um, I know there's a huge emphasis put on um, STEM, which is important. It's critical. Um, science, technology. Science, te- uh, yeah, engineering, math. Right. Um, and, you know, those are, those, in addition to language arts, ELA, are uh, the subjects that are tested. You know, our, our students in uh, Pennsylvania, as well as across the country, take standardized testing. And so the courses that are tested are, you know, English, language arts, math, and science. Uh, Social studies, including history, geography, economics, um, those are not tested. And so, and geography, of course. And so, because of that, uh, geography uh, is kind of set aside as students have to prepare for these tests. You know, as long as a subject isn't uh, tested, you know, they're not going to put as much emphasis on it. In addition, uh, geography is just one component of the social sciences. So you take all the social studies that kids learn, um, they kind of have to divide it up between history and and, um, geography and uh, economics and all of those other things. And so geography kind of gets a sliver Um, If you ever look at the state standards for the social studies, um, if you look specifically at geography, there are very few um, actual standards that are specifically related to geography. If you look at, you know, the others, math, ELA, it just, you know, rows and rows and rows of standards that are required. So it's just, it's not really the fault of teachers. It's really just that teachers are trying to prepare their students for their tests which, you know, they have to do well on, and geography isn't tested, and so it kind of gets forgotten. Um, I think it's having a a dramatic effect uh, negatively. Actually, they did a GAO study back in uh, 2014, and the results were uh, released in 2015 that said that about three-quarters of eighth-grade students um, were below proficient in geography, and that only 3% were considered advanced. That's um, a really low score when you think of um, how critical geography is and understanding the world and in this global world that we live in where we are so interconnected, that three quarters of our students are below proficient. They're basically basic or below basic. They don't have, you know, basic understandings of geographic concepts. So I, I don't I, I don't understand. I don't understand why it's not more important in our schools. And those 3% uh, 
are probably all participants. We will see them at the B, yes. <laughs> in the geography B. That's right. And, and again, we'll talk about the, the B in, in just a few minutes. But, you know, we did cover why it is so important. But what does the future look like if we have so few students who are proficient when it comes to geography? Yeah, that's a very good question because, you know, the ironic thing is there are so many jobs available in the field of geography. Um, the Department of Labor says that employment of geoscientists is projected to grow 10% from 2014 to 2024, which is faster than the average for all occupations. So um, I, I don't, I'm a little concerned because we have kids uh, going through school who are not adequately prepared. They're not learning the basic foundational um, concepts of geography. And then we're sending them into a world that really needs people who understand geography. Uh, jobs in all kinds of fields, but um, one of the big fields is uh, something called GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems. It's basically a kind of a combination of uh, understanding the concepts of geography and applying them in a, a technological sense using computer Computer map making essentially is what it is, and GIS is, um, it's, there are just many, many jobs in local government, national government, uh, private industry, um, transportation, logistics. GIS is used all across the board, and so um, even agriculture, they, they use it for weed and pest management to map. Um, map, they use something called remote sensing where they take aerial photos and then study it to see um, how to combat invasive species. There's just so many applications for GIS and so many jobs available. But what happens is um, a kid thinks, oh, I'd like to study GIS, and they go to college and start to take a class and realize that they don't even understand some basic things because they, they just haven't had it. They might have learned some things when they were younger and then you know, maybe in third or fourth or fifth grade, they have a geography class, and then they don't revisit that for years and years and years, and they don't even know, you know, really how to read a map well. Well, let's talk about that. When yes. you said some of the basic things, what are the basic things? Well, cardinal directions, ordinal directions, north, south, east, west, um, how to navigate, how to look at a map and understand how to get yourself from point A to point B without maybe using the GPS. <laughs> um, we all, yeah, it's handy. It's really handy. But um, yeah, uh, being able to, um, yeah, understand, have, being able to create a mental map for yourself, knowing where you are in relation to another place and understanding that that's really what, you know, when we're talking about geography, that interaction between where I am and where is another place. And um, so uh, some of the basic things, um, a map legend, a map key, you'd be amazed at how many kids, even in high school, don't know how to read a map key, understanding the symbols and what they represent on a map. Those are some basic things. You know, I, we probably have a lot of people who are asking this question, and I'm not going to say just young people, because I know there are some older people mm -hmm. who are uh, challenged when it comes to geography, <laughs> directions, north-south, all right. those things as well. But you know, there are many people who will ask, well, why do I need this since we have technology like GPS? I can get, when I get into my car, I can go from point A to point B by just hitting a few buttons. Yeah, well, I have a great story for that because um, 
you know, when years ago my uh, my family decided we would go to an amusement park and um, up in uh, northern Pennsylvania. And so at that point, we didn't even have a GPS, but we had discovered MapQuest. We thought it was the coolest thing. You I remember when MapQuest came along. Big thing. It yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So you could go on and print where you were going, print off the directions. And so that's what we did. And and I was the navigator. I read the directions. And, my, and I didn't even use my map. I just read the directions. I should have known better. I love maps. So I don't know why. We just thought it was this cool new thing to do. So I read, turn here, get on this highway. And my husband did it. And we got to where we thought we were going, and we ended up in some guy's driveway. And the guy was out pruning his bushes, and he walked right over to us and said, you used MapQuest, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And apparently that happened to him every day, repeatedly. And we had totally just turned off our brains and had become dependent on this technology that was going to get us where we needed to go. And I learned quickly that day that um, it, not, there's nothing like being having your own sense of direction, using a map and, um, yeah, and GPS. It is, it's fine. It's great. I use it. But it should, not, it should not be an excuse for us to turn our brains off and become dependent. You know, and how many times have we gone somewhere and we've lost our signal? Then what? You're you're just kind of if you don't have a sense of where you are, if you can't, you know, even just to be able to look at the sun and know which direction you're driving based on that, that's those are just some basic things that I think we all should know. You know um, that guy needed to open an amusement he sh- park. He sh- either that or a stand, you oh, know, food right. stand or something. <laughs> he, had, he had a second income right. going there. That's right. <laughs> but you know, one of the things, and I have to uh, admit that I am a uh, map geek as well. Mm-hmm. That even though my vehicles have GPS, I have it on my cell phone, I still go to the map first. Yeah. And one of the reasons is that it provides the big picture. Mm-hmm. That now, granted, you can determine on your GPS, you know, how far out you want to be and that kind of thing, how big of a right. you, you want to see. But most people have it where you're just following the, the road. City block. That, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. But if you're looking for a big picture, I'm sitting here uh, just outside of Harrisburg and I want to get to Huntington, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. for example. You know, I want to look at a Pennsylvania map to see what's in between. Right. Maybe if uh, there is, uh, you know, some, okay, amusement parks, maybe <laughs> there are some other things, historical a museum, sites. You exactly. Stop. Yes. Exactly, museum that uh, you didn't know was on the mm-hmm. way. That's the kind of see it thing you see on a map. Now, I know you can do it with GPS, but there's just something about that big picture that a map presents. Right. I agree. And I think, you know, when I was a kid, and I was one of those odd odd kids that poured over maps as a kid. I had an atlas, and I read it all the time. And my mind always, I mean, I looked at the world. I, I looked at various countries, and I loved to see you know what? What was in? What made that country look different from what my country? Topographically, even, um, you know, looking at the landforms, and and it just fascinated me. And I agree. I think you lose that big picture when you are so dependent on your GPS, and you're only using it. And this is because I love geography. I look at it from a, a different perspective than maybe someone who just wants to get from point A to point B. And I understand for those people, um, you know, it's just a means to an end. However, I really think there's so much value in really in understanding and appreciating the bigger picture of a, of a region. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Kristen Byers, Program Manager for the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geographic Education. We're going to be talking about uh, the Pennsylvania State Geography Bee in just a moment, and Kristen uh, is the coordinator for the Geography Bee as well. We've been talking about the importance of geography. Let's get into a little more about the bee itself. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the State Geography Bee, which is scheduled for later today. Okay. Well, the Geography Bee is sponsored by National Geographic, um, and millions of students participate across the country. Uh, between August and December, schools can register to host a Geography Bee in their school. And um, what happens is students between fourth and eighth grade can take a, a written test, and then in that school, the top scorers will have a participate in a final round school-wide bee. Um, the winner from the school-wide bee then uh, takes an online test that's produced by National Geographic, um, and the top scorers in that online test participate in the State B, which is held uh, this afternoon. Now that, uh, in Pennsylvania, we have 104 kids that qualified for the State B that's being held today. And, um, you know, that's out of a lot of students. So those 104 really, really know their, uh, their stuff. So what will happen is then they will come to the State Museum in Harrisburg, that's uh, where we're holding the bee, and um, they will go through a preliminary round of, uh, and that round has uh, eight questions that each student, about 20 kids in each preliminary round room, and they have um, about eight questions. They will be asked through that round, and the top scorers then go to either a tiebreaker round, or um, if we have exactly 10 top students, then they go to the final round, and that's the round that you get to moderate, and those top 10 students will determine, at, through that final round, the winner will be determined. Yes, I should mention that uh, I moderated the final round in the championship round last year. It was a wonderful experience. I have to say that I was just amazed by those kids. I mean, <laughs> I they really know the stuff. They do. It is amazing what they know. I have a degree in geography, and I always say I'm about 50-50, you know, as far as Knowing the answers to some of those questions, it is it is amazing what they know. I'm in fourth through eighth graders, so um, it's it's just quite impressive. And the young man who won last year, yes. and I say young because He's, he was he was a fifth grader, right? That's right. He's in sixth grade this year, and he is one of the qualifying students. So his name is Ben Fisher. So he'll be there along with 103 other students competing again. So yeah. And, um, and I will be uh, moderating that final and championship round, so I'm looking forward to, yes, to that great. as well. I always wonder, though, as I was asking the questions last year, uh, how these uh, young people study for this. Because, I mean, there are some very obscure questions there about obscure places, obscure people, mm-hmm. cultures, history, all those things. Mm-hmm. I, they, I, I think there are a variety of ways that they study. First of all, I think they read a lot of maps. They just look and get a good spatial understanding of the world. Um, because a lot of the questions are worded. They're not just, what's the capital of such and such? They, they're worded in such a way that you have to be able to deduce. You know, they use, you use deductive reasoning to figure out the answer. So sometimes it's a question that um, requires you to understand the relationship between a location and another lo- location. Um, so, you know, they, they have to, yeah, they have to have that basic understanding of, of location by studying maps. Um, 
And then I think they do a lot of reading about, I think they read a lot, honestly, read about uh, the world, about cultures, about religions and languages and um, economic systems. I think they just, um, and there are study guides out there. You can go um, and buy books that help you prepare for the bee. I know National Geographic has daily quizzes that you can go, um, you can go online to their website and every day they have 10 new questions that you can um, you can do online just to see, test your own geographic knowledge. And so I'm sure maybe they're doing that and um, flashcards. They're probably, yeah, they are probably measure, memorizing the capitals of all of the countries and um, the, but it's, it's, it's a lot of information. The world's a big place. And so um, it, it's, I'm, I, like I said, I'm always amazed at what they know. If there was a question, what is the capital of X, I would be shocked. There, I, I doubt that you would. I really doubt you <laughs> I, would see that question. Yeah, yeah. because th- that's what, unfortunately, many people think of. That's what they think geography w- is. What geography is. <laughs> right. And th- you do not see a question like that. No. It would have to be, you know, as you said, some deduction involved, some thinking skills right. involved as to. To figuring out uh, the answer. Exactly. And, and I think that's actually a good thing. And National Geographic is moving in that direction of making sure their questions are. Um, showing a bigger picture. I know I attended the final round in Washington, D.C. last year, and the final question basically was a problem-solving question, and they had to solve a problem based on uh, the information that they knew about a region of the world. Um, I can't remember what the problem was, but it was kind of like an environmental impact situation, and um, so I, and which is great because that's really what we want the study of geography to be about solving problems and and helping us think um, about the world and how we can uh, work in the world if effectively and efficiently solve problems that benefit everyone. So my, that's the that's the point. My biggest challenge, of course, is pronunciation for uh, all yes, these places. Yes, for you, you you have the biggest job <laughs> no, of all. I'm not looking for any sympathy whatsoever. But <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this: I mean, I, I was I was happy last year, and I'll be happy again this year if uh, none of the participants look at me with give me a look like you know you mispronounced that. <laughs> <laughs> I, there are some really tough, tough pronunciations. There is no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about the national competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe that a little bit more. What goes on uh, in the national competition? Okay. Well, every winner from every state, and actually there's some territories, and um, and there's also, which is I think very cool, uh, a winner from uh, students that – uh, their families are stationed overseas. Um, but all that is the, cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool that they offer that uh, for them as well. So those winners um, come to Washington, D.C. between uh, – they'll come on May 14th, and then um, they spend several days in D.C. doing some really cool things, um, being honored by National Geographic, and they also have – Similar to the state, be preliminary competitions and then final a final round for the top ten. The final round is held on May seventeenth um, at National Geographic headquarters, and it'll be moderated by Mo Rocca. He did it last year. Uh, he's from uh, does the show Wait Wait Don't Tell yes. Me and mm-hmm. and some other things, and uh, he will be serving as the final round moderator again. 
And uh, so, and then the winner gets a you know great cash scholarship prize, and um, so it's a really great event for all of those students. And it's a fun week, no matter how they do at that level. It's just a neat experience for them. They get to see Washington D.C. and tour, and they do some. I know last year they got to go to a Washington Nationals baseball game. It's just a, a really nice time for them. Kristen Byers is uh, the coordinator for the Pennsylvania State Geography Bee. Coming up on Monday, we'll be talking about the answering questions about filing your tax returns. Also, a divided nation. 